We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Saturday morning, I take a turn at the skillet. I burn some eggs, boil coffee, drink a cup, then refill it. I read some pages of the paper, mostly look at the pictures. There's a drip at the faucet, so I fumble with the fixture. We take our own showers, wash our own hair, make our own beds, push in our own chairs. I thought all this stuff would get done for me. A robot moves along while I sit under a tree. I thought we'd control wind and rain, cure all sickness, eliminate pain. I wanted mind reading gadgets to cater to my wishes. Want a self-cleaning kitchens and non-sticking dishes. Where's the end of all freedom disease? Where's the milk and honey you see shining sea? And where are the crime-free cities? Rockets on the backs of where all the smooth moving sidewalks. Hey, where's my jet? Oh, I'm not saying white Americans should die, but. Kilda comrades, welcome to the December episode of Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci fi and socialist leanings. We're on the line to my very attractive, unfairly hot, stunningly sexy, breathlessly cute, ridiculously good-looking, criminally cute, strikingly handsome co-host Derek Johnson. Thank you, Ani. This month we're talking about populationism and eco-socialist alternatives. By populationism we mean explanations of social and ecological problems that blame population. We use this synonymously with Malthusianism, after the English cleric Malthus, who famously developed a populationist theory of resource scarcity. Malthus actually came up with the idea to disprove socialism. That said, we'll be debunking contemporary populationism rather than Malthus's long disproven original theory. For this month's Furious Political Thought segment, Derek will be first talking about eco-genocide, then reading extracts from eco-socialist works, particularly the work of Ian Angus, who is well worth a read. Apologies for the block quotes, but sometimes somebody else said it better, plus you get to listen to Derek's voice. Then for our pop culture retrospective, we'll look at this year's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, an 80s BBC series, Edge of Darkness, focusing on their environmental themes. Finally, for the local area network report, we'll look at the situation for climate refugees in the Pacific. Despite the title, we won't actually be discussing Thanos that much. That's, that's been done to death. But if you want a good take on that, we recommend YouTube video Thanos Was Wrong by Renegade Cut. There are a few videos under that name, but in my opinion, the Renegade Cut one is the best. Uh, there are also some right-wing takes on why Thanos was wrong, like one from the Foundation for Economic Education. If anyone's wondering why it's even necessary to prove a Marvel supervillain wrong, 
Purple Space Malthus has been embraced on certain parts of the internet for his dubious populationism. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, Thanos was wrong, the universal Malthusian trap by Professor Politics. Uh, my only problem with the movie, uh, still, I watched it again the other day, is really nobody was smart enough to make this argument that was made in the video uh, in movie. Like, by Tony. Uh, hello, Tony Stark, smartest guy in the world. You can't debunk uh, the Mad Titan. I mean, it w- would have been a great uh, point of Endgame. Uh, would have been to show Thanos and how wrong he was. And, you know, and again, he is a Mad Titan. You know, we're going to take his word for it. That his science holds up. And it wasn't made clear enough in the movie that he was, you know, it was just his, his opinion, man. It was a bad theory. But, you know, I was watching Endgame again, and actually there was a part in there where even Thanos came to the conclusion that it was pointless and that he his, his uh, calculus was wrong and everything. But ultimately his conclusion was to kill everybody in the universe and start again. Yeah, I get the argument that it's just a dumb comic book movie. It's not where you expect an in-depth political debate. But... If that's the case, if they didn't really want to debate Malthusianism, they didn't really, they didn't have to throw it into the movie. They could have stuck with his original and much better motivation of wanting to fuck the Grim Reaper. Yep. But my next rep is the Just Transmissions podcast from Aotearoa, New Zealand. They only go out very occasionally, but it's good content with an explicitly eco-socialist lens. And from the world of mainstream media, uh, Q&A Pacific is worth a watch. This was a special episode of the ABC or Australian Broadcasting Corporation flagship panel show Q&A, focusing on Pacifica issues in collaboration with the Fijian Broadcasting Corporation and broadcast from Suva, Fiji. The episode addressed climate change, overfishing, violence against women, the measles epidemic, and Chinese investment in the Pacific. You can find that online at the ABC website, and we'll link it on the blog. Now for our various political thoughts segment. A study by the United Nations has found climate change could drive 122 million more people into extreme poverty in the next 15 years, in part due to the impact it is already having on small-scale farmers. We now know that for decades, beginning in 1977, Exxon concealed its own findings that fossil fuels cause global warming and alter the climate and melt Arctic ice. Hindsight is 2020, but if not for Exxon's cover-up, NASA and others could have brought proof and the importance of climate 
climate change to our governments and other bodies to do something as far back as the late 70s. Talking about climate change can be nihilistically depressing because for the first time in our planet's history, we are a species aware of its impending extinction. We are indeed living through the sixth extinction. I'm going to get to the brass tacks and suicidally depressing roots and propose an optimistic solution. The US presidential race is off the rails again this year and politicians in the media are in panic mode because of progressive candidates who might actually improve the lives of citizens, not because Trump is a fascist who needs to be removed immediately and cannot serve a second term. As much as I like to see them all lose control, they are turning the screws on us. Trump must go, but beyond that, I don't care who the next president is, and I don't want anybody to be the president for that matter. We need to stop having presidents. They don't know what to do anymore, and the schisms are showing. And the economy is about to tank again, like in 2008, and the government and capitalists and their political class are flipping out in panic. This election scam is a symptom of systemic problems with really existing capitalist democracy, or wrecked, as Chomsky calls it. The most pressing issue of our time, our own fucking possible extinction, is only mentioned because of Bernie Sanders or AOC, at least, but overall, the political class and the mainstream media are ignoring the fire outside as California literally burns down. They all know deep down that capitalism has killed the habitability of this world. They fucked up and killed us all, and we all have to get used to struggle. We are in the struggle of our fucking lives now. It looks like things are going south quicker than we will ever have a revolution to overthrow this shit and save our species, but I hope not. I, I hope that's just the nihilism and pessimism sneaking in. But the planet is going to survive but it's going to be uninhabitable for human life and many other species. This is beyond unacceptable. Going slow about changing our economy and using oil is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic while us radicals warn about the goddamn iceberg. We have to get used to endless struggle. Even something like a Green New Deal is being violently resisted by the status quo. Demagogues right and left are going to try and convince people that it is a Malthusian overpopulation problem. Malthusianism has long been debunked and technically we are already living in a post-scarcity civilization because scarcity is enforced by markets in the state. The problem of quote-unquote overpopulation, habitat destruction, famine, drought, etc. is the direct result of our economic political system, which needs scarcity and planned obsolescence to function. We have enough food, shelter, and medicine for every person on the planet, but resource and wealth distribution is dictated by a system with no ability for long-term planning. We live under a system that allows for-profit medicine and healthcare, and based on that, on the stat I can't stop pointing out, America has not only enough money to feed the hungry and house the homeless, 
there are enough empty homes that every one homeless person could get six houses each. Let me repeat that. There are enough empty homes in America that every one homeless person could get six fucking houses each. I agree that we need to stop focusing on neoliberalism as a new strain of capitalism, but we need to see that it has actually given way to the return to a more raw and predatory capitalism as it used to be and always was. I think now we are entering a new era of naked capitalism. We often have to ask ourselves when confronted by rulers who see the threat and choose to both do nothing and hasten it, as we've seen with this Trump administration as well as with Russia and China. Global warming is in progress and now irreversible, and I don't want to go into conspiracy theories, but it is reasonable hypothesis here that past a certain point, the ruling class intentionally planned to do nothing, knowing it would get locked in and all the people would die, but certain people. This is looking to be by design. Not that the rich created climate change to kill us all, but rather they're adapting to it and exploiting it rather than doing something about it to ameliorate it or stop it. Perhaps what we're witnessing in global warming is an improvised quote-unquote planned genocide of many global south nations that will make prior genocides seem quite small in comparison. Global warming denialists are Holocaust deniers, each in their own right, given that this is a Holocaust that is ongoing and will get worse in the future. And they should be treated just as morally reprehensible as any other genocide deniers. I'm afraid rather than combat climate change, the powers that be can enforce walling in countries, closing immigration and migration, and starve out and kill people with the elements and act like they didn't do it on purpose. It really looks like rather than do anything, they're planning to just build these walled cities and maybe domes and let, let the poor die. They can cull the populations like never before. Under this unleashed raw capitalism, they get to wipe out the so-called developing world and surplus labor here and there, etc. The capitalists have murdered the countless humans that will die from climate change through conscious inaction in the face of an oncoming threat that they know fully well about. The weakest and poorest are intentionally being left to bear the worst brunt. This may technically be genocide by proxy, if you want to be a stickler, though through economic policy, if you will, but intentional inaction is ethically no different than intentional planning and action at the end of the day. It really looks like rather than doing anything, they're planning to again just hunker down, wall in the cities, and let the poor die. This death is essentially genocide. This is no different than what Stalin did to Ukraine, except on scale. And this proper term, if you want to be really technical, is democide. That term was revived and redefined by political scientist R.J. Rummel as, quote, the murder of any person or people by their government, including genocide, politicide, and mass murder. For example, government-sponsored killings for political reasons would be considered democide under Rummel's hypothesis. Also, democide can include deaths arising from, quote, intentionally or knowingly reckless and depraved disregard for life. This brings into account many deaths arising through various neglects and abuses such as 
forced mass starvation. Rommel explicitly excludes battle deaths in his definition, capital punishment actions taken against armed civilians during mob action or riot, and the deaths of non-combatants killed during attacks on military targets so long as the primary target is military are not considered democide. According to Rommel, democide surpassed war as the leading cause of non-natural death in the 20th century. Rommel estimated that there have been 262 million victims of democide in the last century. According to his figures, six times as many people have died from the actions of people working for governments than have died in battle. This destroys Steven Pinker's thesis that somehow the world is less violent now and that less people are dying from war conflict and violence because of strong states and thus justifying states and ultimately capitalism his calculation only works if you ignore all of this you ignore democide and structural violence and the cost of capitalism in my opinion i feel like in scorched earth fashion capitalists are literally making sure there's no alternative if they collapse the economic order or are overthrown. We may get eco-socialism or full communism, but it will be in a Mad Max wasteland. We need a fundamental new society because the status quo can no longer hold. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best that we need a revolution in values. We need a social revolution. Our task now is to hasten such a global socialist revolution to forge an eco-socialism for an actually free and sustainable future. We may have to go down trying to build that better society, or we are going to have to live in Mad Max. It's communism or barbarism, as Rosa said, indeed. Thanks for that, Derek. Now we're presenting three excerpts from eco-socialist texts. First off, the following is an excerpt from Accepting Those Population Numbers by Ian Angus on the Climate and Capitalism blog. Anyone who carefully reads the many websites, articles, speeches, and books that argue the too many people thesis will find that they offer little or no evidence to support such conclusions. This simplistic logic only works if every additional person causes the environmental impact to increase by, quote, some arbitrary quantification X, and the populationist argument assumes that but doesn't prove it. At some point in every introductory statistics course, the instructor tells students about a European city where increases in the stork population were supposedly matched by increases in the number of new babies. The point is that correlation isn't causation. Storks don't bring babies, no matter what the numbers say. This lesson is all too rarely applied to debates on population and emissions. To determine whether population growth really drives emission levels, or if the correlation is a coincidence, or if the numbers are in some other way misleading. We need to go beyond big numbers and examine real connections and relationships. With population, the correlation or causation problem is further complicated by the fact that big scary numbers 6.7 billion people 
10,000 births per hour actually tell us very little unless we examine them in context. Population statistics are useful only if we understand how they are determined, what they include, and what they leave out, what their strengths and limitations are for any specific purpose. As Karl Marx wrote 150 years ago, population is an abstraction, not a real thing. Quote, it seems to be correct to begin with the real and the concrete, with the real precondition thus to begin in economics, with e.g. the population, which is the foundation and the subject of the entire social act of production. However, on closer examination, this proves false. The population is an abstraction if I leave out, for example, the classes of which it is composed. This is a profound insight, one that activists who are concerned about the complex relationship between humanity and the world we live in must understand. Quote unquote, population is just a number, one that can conceal far more than it reveals. To understand the relationship between population and climate change, we need to dissect the big numbers. One, CO2 emissions are a problem of rich countries, not poor ones. The G20 countries produced more than 22,500 million tons of CO2 in 2006. That's 78% of the worldwide total, nearly four times as much as all other countries combined. It is more than 770 times as much CO2 as the 19 lowest emitting countries produced. Per capita, CO2 emissions in the US are 98 times greater than in Gambia, 132 times greater than in Madagascar, 197 times greater than in Mozambique, and 400 times greater than in Mali or Burkina Faso. These figures, it's important to note, significantly understate the case because they don't include some of the major emission sources that are concentrated in rich countries, such as military activity and international air travel. So the idea that, quote, providing the means for, a fa for family planning to those who want it but don't have access will somehow slow global warming makes no sense. With few exceptions, birth control has long been available in the countries that are doing the most to destroy the Earth's climate. So take that Bill and Melinda Gates, fucking eugenicists. Two, there is no correspondence between emissions and population density. The high-emitting G20 group includes countries such as India, Japan, and South Korea, which are home to high numbers of people per square kilometer, and it also includes countries with low population density, such as Australia, Canada, and Russia. Exactly the same is true of the low-emission group, which includes countries with high population density, such as Rwanda, Burundi, 
and countries with low population density, Niger, Chad. So it's clearly possible to have low population density with high emissions or high population density with low emissions. It is worth noting that almost all of the low emissions countries have far fewer people per square kilometer than the United Kingdom, where Optimum Population Trust is promoting third world birth control as a means of slowing global warming. Three, population growth rates do not correspond to CO2 emissions. In fact, there's a negative correlation. Broadly speaking, the countries with the highest per capita emissions are those whose population is growing most slowly or even declining, while the countries with the lowest emissions have the highest growth rates. In fact, in most G20 countries, the birth rate is at or below replacement level. If it weren't for immigration, ironic, their total population would be falling. According to some estimates, by the end of this century, the population of Italy, excluding immigration, will fall by 86%, Spain will decline 85%, Germany 83%, and Greece 74%. Only three G20 countries, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, and India, have fertility rates that are clearly above replacement level, and even they are growing far more slowly than the 19 lowest emitting countries. If we were to adopt the usual populationist correlation equals causation stance, we'd have to conclude that high emissions cause low population growth or that high population growth causes low emissions. Of course, that's absurd. Both emissions levels and population growth are shaped by other social and economic causes. The real conclusion is that there's something seriously wrong with the more people equals more emissions argument and something even more wrong with the idea that third world birth control will somehow slow global warming. Secondly, this is an excerpt from Eco-Modernism is Not Eco-Socialism, which is also by Ian Angus on the Climate and Capitalism blog. This summer, the left-wing magazine Jacobin published a special issue on climate change. The lead article declares that climate change has to be at the center of how we mobilize and organize going forward. From now on, every issue is a climate issue. That's excellent news. A magazine that calls itself, quote, a leading voice of the American left, offering socialist perspectives on politics, economics, and culture, ought to be a leader in the fight against capitalism's deadly assault on the Earth's life support systems. Unfortunately, if the special issue is any indication, Jacobin is heading in the wrong direction. Although the term eco-socialism appears from time to time, always with a hyphen, which may indicate some uneasiness with the combination, there is nothing in this issue resembling an eco-socialist analysis or program. 
There's not a word about stopping coal or tar sands mining, and no mention of shutting down the world's biggest polluter, the U.S. military. Instead, we are offered peons to technology in articles like that advocate nuclear power, geoengineering, which is a massive mistake, newer power grids, electric cars, and the like. But despite their technophilia, the authors display little understanding of the technologies they support. Take, for example, the piece by Christian Parenti. He has written elsewhere that the U.S. government can resolve the climate crisis without system change by supporting clean technologies. So, quote, realistic climate politics are reformist politics. This article says much the same, that, quote, state action and the public sector can solve climate change by implementing carbon capture and sequestration, CCS. He tells us that removing CO2 from the atmosphere is fairly simple, quote unquote, because it has been done in submarines for years and because Icelandic scientists recently developed a safe method of injecting CO2 into the underground basalt where it becomes lime, a limestone-like solid within two years. That sounds impressive, but is it credible? The idea that removing the CO2 exhaled by 150 sailors in a closed system is com comparable to removing billions of tons from the open atmosphere is more than a little absurd. Parenti should have checked with the US Navy. Last year, it issued a request for proposals for new CO2 capture systems in its submarines. Because the systems now used, quote, are relatively energy intensive and quote, material has a short lifetime requiring replacement underway and hazmat wastes are complicated to handle. Obviously, expanding that technology to cover the globe is not in the cards. There is only one commercial plant in the entire world that captures CO2 directly from the air. According to the journal Science, it takes in just 900 tons of CO2 a year, roughly the amount produced by 200 cars. The company that built it says that capturing just 1% of global CO2 emissions would require 250,000 similar plants. Fairly simple just doesn't apply. As for the Icelandic experiment in storing CO2 in basalt, Parenti doesn't seem to have read beyond the gee whiz headlines. Geophysicist Andy Skoos reports in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists that the experiments only buried 250 tons of CO2 and the gas had first to be dissolved in, quote, almost unimaginable amounts of water, 25 tons of H2O for every ton of CO2. Not only is that unsustainable, it is unknown how well the results in Iceland can be applied at large scale in other locales. 
As Joe Rahm of Climate Progress says, quote, CCS simply hasn't yet proven to be practical, affordable, scalable, and ready to be ramped up rapidly. In his eagerness to promote a technical solution to climate change, Parenti fails to consider whether the technology will do the job, not to mention how we might convince governments to spend the $24 trillion, 133% of US GDP, that he thinks it will cost. Unfortunately, such light-mindedness is a common failing in this issue of Jacobin. The views expressed in this issue of Jacobin are similar to those promoted in the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, which claims that, quote, meaningful climate mitigation is fundamentally a technological challenge and that, quote, knowledge and technology applied with wisdom might allow for a good or even great Anthropocene. That's a very weird comment. Make the Anthropocene great again? Yeah. Uh, Clive Hamilton describes this, quote, a form of denial or at least evasion, one that selectively permits certain facts through the optimo filter while blocking or downplaying others. We see it in different forms in the pronouncements of the Anti-Green Breakthrough Institute in the U.S., which wrote the manifesto and then spiked online, again, another questionable publication, and even more vehemently anti-environment group in the U.K. Is Jacobin becoming a voice for eco-modernism with a leftish veneer? I hope not, but the signs aren't good. The first book in the new Jacobin book series, Four Futures, by Peter Fraze, offers future scenarios based on science fiction movies and books. As Anthony Galuzzo says in a review, this approach allows Fraze to ignore the technological, ecological, or social feasibility of his predictions. The forthcoming second book in this series is co-authored by Lee Phillips, who works with both the Breakthrough Institute and Spiked Online, who wrote Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts, an appalling anti-green screed that includes chapters titled In Defensive Stuff and There's No Metabolic Rift. Fraze and Phillips both advocate massive technology deployment in this issue of Jacobin. The former supports geoengineering, the latter nuclear power. Uh, neither discusses the environment, social, and financial costs that such mega-projects would entail. If these are Jacobin's advisors on climate change, it is definitely on the wrong track. Eco-modernism is incompatible with eco-socialism. If Jacobin recognizes that and changes course, it can make important contributions to the fight against climate change. I'll keep my fingers crossed, but I'm not holding my breath. Thanks, Derek. Uh, by the way, I'd like to clarify that we're not anarcho-primitivists here, uh, that anarcho-primitivists are opposed to all technology. Technology is part of the solution, but we already have many of the necessary technologies 
It's an issue of social transformation. There's the slogan, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed, which I think is accurate. The large-scale fantasies of geoengineering fail to grapple with the obvious and long history of unintended consequences. Exactly, more like a nightmare. They want to block out the sun and altering, you know, seed clouding and, and all these things that just have no proven efficacy. And it's like, basically, doing these projects will be the test runs. Mm. And the price for those test runs of wiping out habitability on Earth and killing all livestock and killing all plant life and and blocking out the sun is, uh, call me crazy, but that's that's just not worth it. Yeah, yeah. The so-called solution of dismantling modern all modern technology is also completely reactionary and would screw over many already vulnerable people. To put it simply, some technologies are good, some are bad, and as, as you kind of indicated, we don't really know what would be the consequences of geoengineering, whereas there's other technologies, you know, we are already a lot more familiar with. Finally, an excerpt from the 2008 Ballon Declaration, which presents an eco-socialist program for the 21st century. The eco-socialist movement aims to stop and to reverse the disastrous process of global warming in particular and of capitalist ecocide in general, and to construct a radical and practical alternative to the capitalist system. Eco-socialism is grounded in a transformed economy founded on the non-monetary values of social justice and ecological balance. It criticizes both capitalist market ecology and productivist socialism, which ignored the Earth's equilibrium and limits. It redefines the path and goal of socialism within an ecological and democratic framework. Eco-socialism involves a revolutionary and social transformation, which will imply the limitation of growth and the transformation of needs by a profound shift away from quantitative and toward qualitative economic criteria, an emphasis on use value instead of exchange value. These aims require both democratic decision-making in the economic sphere enabling society to collectively define its goals of investment and production and the collectivization of the means of production. Only collective decision-making and ownership of production can offer the longer-term perspective that is necessary for the balance and sustainability of our social and natural systems. The rejection of productivism and the shift away from quantitative toward qualitative economic criteria involve rethinking the nature and goals of production and economic activity in general. A central creative, non-productive, and reproductive human activities such as householding, child-rearing, care, child, and adult education, and the arts will be key values in an eco-socialist economy. Clean air and water and fertile soil 
as well as universal access to chemical-free food and renewable, non-polluting energy sources are basic human and natural rights defended by eco-socialism. Far from being despotic, collective policy-making on the local, regional, and national and international levels amounts to society's exercise of communal freedom and responsibility. This freedom of decision constitutes a liberation from the alienating economic quote-unquote laws of the growth-oriented capitalist system to avoid global warming and other dangers threatening human and ecological survival entire sectors of industry and agriculture must be suppressed reduced or restructured and others must be developed while providing full employment for all such a radical transformation is impossible without collective control of the means of production and democratic planning of production and exchange. Democratic decisions on investment and technological development must replace control by capitalist enterprises, investors, and banks in order to serve the long-term horizon of society's and nature's common good. The most oppressed elements of human society, the poor and indigenous peoples, must take full part in the eco-socialist revolution in order to revitalize ecologically sustainable traditions and give voice to those whom the capitalist system cannot hear. Because the peoples of the global south and the poor in general are the first victims of capitalist destruction, their struggles and demands will help define the contours of the ecologically and economically sustainable society in creation. Similarly, gender equality is integral to eco-socialism, and women's movements have been among the most active and vocal opponents of capitalist oppression. Other potential agents of eco-socialist revolutionary change exist in all societies. Such a process cannot begin without a revolutionary transformation of social and political structures based on the active support by the majority of the population of an eco-socialist program. The struggle of labor, workers, farmers, the landless and the unemployed for social justice is inseparable from the struggle for environmental justice. Capitalism, socially and ecologically exploitative and polluting, is the enemy of nature and of labor alike. Eco-socialism proposes radical transformations in 1. The energy system by replacing carbon-based fuels and biofuels with clean sources of power under community control, wind, geothermal, wave, and above all, solar power. Two, the transportation system, by drastically reducing the use of private trucks and cars, replacing them with free and efficient public transportation. Three, present patterns of production, consumption, and building, which are based on waste, inbuilt obsolescence, competition, and pollution by producing only sustainable, and recyclable goods 
and developing green architecture. Four, food production and distribution by defending local food sovereignty as far as this is possible, eliminating polluting industrial agribusiness, creating sustainable agro-ecosystems, and working actively to renew soil fertility. Urban and rural workers, peoples of the global south, and indigenous peoples everywhere are the forefront of this struggle against environmental and social injustice, fighting exploitative and polluting multinationals, poisonous and disenfranchising agribusinesses, invasive genetically modified seeds, biofuels that only aggravate the current food crisis. We must further these social environmental movements and build solidarity between anti-capitalist ecological mobilizations in the North and the South. This eco-socialist declaration is a call to action. The entrenched ruling classes are powerful, yet the capitalist system reveals itself every day more financially and ideologically bankrupt unable to overcome the economic, ecological, social, food, and other crises it engenders. And the forces of radical opposition are alive and vital. On all levels, local, regional, and international, we are fighting to create an alternative system based in social and ecological justice. For our pop culture retrospective, Ani will be reviewing both Godzilla, King of the Monsters, released this year, and Edge of Darkness, released in the 80s. So, Ani, what did you think of this year's Godzilla? I thought it was criminally underrated at less than the 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's very easily the best US Godzilla, and also the first US Godzilla movie to come close to capturing the feel of the Toho multi-kaiju matchup movies. Though it's still a bit dry compared to the peaks of weirdness in those movies. On a technical note, critics have complained about Godzilla 2019 being too visually dark, but I actually thought the lighting of the kaiju was lovely. You had the stark contrast backlighting so it was easy to make out the figures quite starkly when we needed to before they returned to darkness. Unlike Game of Thrones. Yeah, unlike a lot of things, I think the problem with darkness is when it's too washed out and contrast. It might depend on the screen you're watching it on, but mm. in the cinema I thought it was beautiful. Uh, another nice aspect of the cinematography was the distinct color pad palettes for each kaiju. Godzilla's blue charge for his atomic breath is particularly brilliant with the, with the sound effect along with it. My only issue with Godzilla 2019 is that the dialogue and characterization was a bit perfunctory, but it's really all about the kaiju, not the humans. So a decent, fun blockbuster and completely underrated. It's not the best movie ever made, but it's in my top five Godzilla movies, at least. And that's including the Toho movies. Anyway, I'm just going to focus quite specifically on the environmental themes, leaving out the 
rest of the plot and characters. So the concept is that the various kaiju are collectively Earth's revenge. There are human eco-terrorists helping the process along, but basically it's a response by the Earth to ecological destruction. This actually ties together the kaiju universe quite appropriately, because a lot of the kaiju were woken up by nuclear testing and the like, so it just makes sense in terms of lore. It is a common element between the kaiju. People criticize the science, but this was never a hard sci-fi universe. In the essay Monsters of the Rift, friend and comrade Jay Short notes kaiju have been connected to ecological imbalance since the original Japanese Gojira in 1954, which famously and actually quite overtly reflected on nuclear power after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks. Yet Short's essay was written before the 2019 Godzilla, and I'd say in this movie, kaiju come to represent not unbalance, but the return of balance. It's the same basic thematic territory. Their emergence does denote a world out of out of balance, but here they've emerged explicitly to restore that balance. Short notes that kaiju tend to be vanquished in US movies, but tend to remain at the end of Japanese movies. And the 2019 entry notably concludes with a world now full of kaiju. As Short highlights, they're not alien intruders, they belong to the same world as us. Except for King Ghidorah. Yes, except for King Ghidorah. But uh, yeah, most of them uh, come from Earth uh, and are often older than humans. As well as tying the lore together, the Earth's revenge concept is very Gaia, although that term Gaia isn't explicitly used. Gaia is a kind of reactionary theory propagated by James Lovelock. So to quote Lovelock, it's, quote, the hypothesis, the model, in which the Earth's living matter, air, oceans, and land surface form a complex system which can be seen as a single organism and which has the capacity to keep our planet a fit place to live, close quote. That's not really a problem for me. The problem is that in Lovelock's account, uh, Gaia will restore ecological balance through depopulation. And as I'll discuss a bit further later on, this is seen as a feature, not a bug. It's, he, he sees it as, in some ways, a positive thing. So it's not like he's just warning us that there will be great consequences. He's actually, he actually talks about depopulation as, as an evolutionary step forward. So it's, it's pretty, I think it's a pretty reactionary theory. In Godzilla 2019, the Earth's revenge again will involve depopulation through kaiju attacks. And we see in time-lapse the greening of the cities after they've been depopulated. It's a different kind of populationism from Thanos, because Thanos exerted arbitrary power based on a questionable calculus. Godzilla natural forces have agency. So it's still Malthusian, but it's a more ecologically interesting Malthusianism than we get from Marvel, based on an idea of naturally occurring ecological balance rather than the arbitrary exertion of humanoid power. 
And that's why I say it's sort of similar to Gaia theory. Mm-hmm. In that it, yeah, it's very uh, Shinto. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Earth's agency and the agency of the non-human. It's, it's silly to me that Marvel movies get over 90% while Godzilla gets under 50 on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Although you do get some conspiracy theorists saying that Disney is paying critics off, and I think that's a bit silly. <laughs> As I've said many times, uh, you know, don't assume conspiracy when you can assume stupidity. You know, critics are just capable of getting it wrong. But legendary pictures are building an interconnected monster verse similar to the Japanese movies and also obviously similar to the MCU. The next entry, Godzilla vs. Kong, has unfortunately been delayed from March 2020 to November. We'll review that when it comes out and we're in touch with Kaiju superfan Jay Short who I quoted earlier about potentially guesting and co-reviewing that. Uh, He has a lot more knowledge of the kaiju universe than I do, so that could be a good discussion. Now for some concluding non-sequiturs. I I ship Godzilla slash Mothra hard. (laughs) The best legendary monsterverse movie is Kong Skull Island. And for more ecologically themed Godzilla movies, I recommend 2016's Shin Godzilla, which is basically Fukushima Godzilla, and 1971's genuinely bizarre psychedelic classic, Godzilla vs. Hedera, aka Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. The tone is set early on when people dancing at a club turn into fish for no discernible plot reason. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting movie. Yeah, Shin Godzilla was very good, mm. and I'm a, a big fan of uh, Kong Skull Island and the way it handled American imperialism mm. and the Vietnam War and everything. Mm. You know, by the time you get to Godzilla King of Monsters, you know it's like humans are like ants uh, in, in a world that no longer belongs to us. You know. And that's definitely, you know, in keeping with the Gaian ideas, mm. uh, especially uh, some of the ideas that are in Edge of Darkness, which we'll be getting to. I share your thoughts on on uh, this one. I enjoyed it a lot. I I really felt like, you know, watching it on a really big screen, you really felt like you were that small, and that these were such big, godlike creatures, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, and it's like, why the hell did this bomb? And people not like it, you know? It's like, I thought the first Godzilla was pretty damn good, too. You know, it had God Godzilla, of course, and Brian Cranston as advertised, though the former was used sparingly like Jaws or Alien, and the latter was, I guess, not in the movie as long as we had hoped. And, of course, he, was, he died and was replaced by a very boring son. And uh, it was very much like the black and white original, I felt. Like, it was it was setting up the world building. Godzilla was this thing threatening a city. You know, it wasn't just like going nuts with all the, you know, kaiju fighting yet. You know, it, it had the mutos in there. But, like, it wasn't, like, getting into the big stuff yet of, like, totally leveling multiple cities and stuff. And it's, it's just very weird 
that, that you know the complaint with the first one was that there was too much boring humans not enough Godzilla in the kaiju action and then King of Monsters I thought had a good balance of nothing but kaiju fights and it had a uh, focus on the humans uh, you know helping Godzilla or the eco-terrorists or whatever and you had every Toho kaiju up there on screen I was like what more can you ask for and you know I wish it could have had the political drama of Shin Godzilla combined into all that because I think that would be brilliant and the Gaia theory and hollow earth stuff got to be really careful with that uh, especially hollow earth uh, you know it can give way to Nazi mysticism in the wrong hands uh, this this time uh, people complained that there was too much kaiju and blah 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 I feel like it's uh, cr- criticizing The Force Awakens for being too derivative and safe and then complaining that The Last Jedi took too many risks and departed from the usual too radically. Bayformers does gangbusters while being ugly, visually incomprehensibly edited ads for the U.S. military and racism. But these movies actually have superior you know, giant robot monster action and get treated like chopped liver. Whether we're thinking about the Pacific Rim movies, uh, Kong Skull Island, uh, Rampage, which is criminally uh, underrated, uh, starring The Rock. I love The Rock. That was a successful adaptation of a video game into a movie. And I've been a big fan of the Rampage games since it was in the arcade as a kid. And they actually made Rampage work as a movie. And that was nothing short of a miracle. There seems to be a little bit of an anti-kaiju bias in U.S. audiences. And for people to attack it from a scientific standpoint Mm. are completely doing a non sequitur. Because none of these creatures could exist under the... The uh, square yeah. cube law. This is definitely not not hard sci-fi at all. So let it go and have fun. Yeah, you know? yeah, pretty much. I talked about people shipping, um, oh, or me and and people shipping Godzilla and Mothra. There's been a lot of objections. Basically, there's a lot of fanboys who are very upset by it. And one of them was that it wasn't their reproducing wasn't scientifically plausible. And it's like for one thing, nobody's showing them fucking or having babies. People are just showing them like being affectionate kind of thing. Uh, but also they, you know, they went on to say like keep it scientific. And it was like keep it scientific. Have you watched these movies? Like you're you're watching the wrong movies. Animals can be friends across species. Yeah. Kropotkin and science and evolution has Mm. proved that time and time again. We see it all over our Facebook news feeds of cats taking care of baby deers, rabbits, etc., etc. Yeah, and love isn't always about reproducing. So how about uh, Edge of Darkness? Uh, That was uh, very impressive. What what did you think of it? You introduced me to it. Yeah, it's really fucking good. Uh, So for those who don't know, it's a BBC drama from the 80s, just a mini-series. It's a dystopian mystery about nucleus power, sort of quasi-sci-fi in that it's set five minutes ahead of when it was broadcast, with magical realist elements developing towards the end. 
It's the kind of mystery where the investigation of crime becomes an investigation of society as a whole. Maybe The Wire is probably the most sort of famous example of that. Uh, in this case, lead detective Craven investigating the assassination of his daughter Emma. It's an early work by Kiwi director Martin Campbell, who sets a lovely moody atmosphere, unusually cinematic for 80s BBC. Uh, he went on to direct Goldeneye, which was pretty good, and unfortunately the US Edge of Darkness remake with Mel Gibson, which was just a mediocre revenge movie, missing the point completely. And he, he directed... Um... Uh, Casino Royale as well, right? Yeah, and that was okay. I'm not a big fan of the whole gritty Bond thing, but it's, you know, it's not a bad movie. I mean, he's generally a decent hack director, but I think Edge of Darkness is a lot better than anything he's done since because it's just better written and it's a more interesting story. But he's usually fine as just a, as just a hack director, I think. But uh, the original Edge of Darkness is something much darker and more political. Again, I'm going to focus quite specifically on the eco-themes, jumping over a lot of plot and character details, to the ideas exposited, particularly in the last couple of episodes. It's sort of a plot spoiler, so you might want to watch watch the series first, but it's more of a thematic thematic spoiler in a way than a, than a plot spoiler. I won't tell you the most important plot bits, but the show ends up quite explicitly positing Gaia theory in the face of nuclear threat. Whereas in Godzilla, the term Gaia was not used. In Edge of Darkness, they straight up say Gaia is taking revenge. And that's, I think, quite a common feature of British pop culture uh, or TV, particularly vis-a-vis -vis American, that you'll often have people in British TV saying that they like vote Labour, or even talking about um, Labour's history of betrayals, and this will be in like BBC fiction. You don't really get that in American TV. People don't say they're Democrats or Republicans, you just kind of read it in. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting cultural difference. And Edge of Darkness is very straight up. You know, it starts with union politics, student union politics, socialist talking points, differences between like eco groups and socialist groups like anyone who's uh, like far left political junkie even if you don't agree with everything in the show you'll find it interesting just for that because it's so so overt about this stuff and the the whole use of Gaia theory although you know I've got criticisms of it and I'll go into that more but in terms of as a show it works because it's expressed quite poetically and tragically so so it's narratively compelling uh, in a way that gets away with potentially being didactic. Uh, but yeah. in, the, in the political world of the show, basically everything human is corrupted. So every individual and institution, governments, corporations, and even forces of the left. It's very cynical and uh, actually for, uh, I would say it's ahead of its time in kind of uh, prefiguring the whole notion of anarcho-primitivists and nihilist environmental extremists and stuff mm. and the, the idea is that there's there's no point in doing anything there's no point you know let's just let a billion people die mm. and uh, you know go Thanos and uh, 
let Gaia sort it out. Well, I mean, Gaia theory already existed, so yeah, it was the early stages of, of those ideas. And, I mean, by corruption here, I don't just mean bad individuals taking bribes or what have you. It's more something like an infection that spreads throughout the social body. So not just corrupt people, but a process of corruption. And only Craven's daughter, Emma, who's an environmentalist, seems immune from this pervasive sickness. But then she dies right at the start. So we mostly see her through her father's idealized lens. She sort of acts as his conscience, and she's implicitly connected with Gaia, which could be very cheesy. I mean, sometimes that kind of essentialist link between femininity and the Earth can be can be a bit a bit cheesy and essentialist, but it, it works in part because it's the show is just too dark to surrender to pure sentimentality, the kind of goth ecology. It's very end of the Cold War to me. So you've got the crisis of utopianism, humanity failing to redeem itself historically, and obviously the threat of nuclear power as well. And ultimately, in, in the face of this pervasive human failure, quote the show, nature will protect itself. And in this conception, unlike in an eco-socialist conception, nature and humanity are opposed. Human institutions need to be down. not just transformed through organization like we leftists might yeah but completely destroyed it's a similar idea to snowpiercer's climax when we first meet craven he's agreeing to turn a blind eye to the fixing of a trade union election so Suge gets in this trade union aspect isn't actually particularly significant in the plot in itself, but it sets up the theme of powerful actors having their fingers in every pie, co-opting all opposition. And with human society corrupted from top to bottom and everybody complicit, Gaia becomes a cleansing, vengeful force. Even though the show's theory of ecology isn't my theory of ecology. It's still a compelling and powerful vision. Honestly, if some of these ideas were expressed in a poorly designed meme, they'd be embarrassing. But in a well-designed miniseries, they're pretty compelling. So weirdly, in this episode, we've denounced populationism, then praised a couple of populationist screen texts. But good politics and good art don't always correlate. Your fave is always problematic, Godzilla is decent, and Edge of Darkness is brilliant. Yeah, I really like that idea about everybody being complicit and showing at the end all the government and private sector people were sitting at the same table mm. at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and celebrating. Mm. <laughs> so was the the daughter a ghost at certain points in the show, not just his, his imagination? That was like a manifestation of Gaia? Yeah, I think it was a, a magical realist thing. It's not exactly clear how, how much of it is literal, but yeah, I think that's one of the first kind of magical realist elements that comes through. I guess the show was, is so superior because of the writer rather than the director, where, you know, as much as the director made a very grounded and, and realistic looking, uh, you know, action-packed, you know, movie that looked like it took place in reality, no matter how off the wall the, 
ideas got, you know, this, this story started from a very interesting place and, uh, won't, won't get into that. Won't spoil that. Yeah, it was a very good series. Uh, very well made, written, directed, acted. That vibrator, though, I don't get it. Yeah, Craven's a, a bit of a, an unusual character. I don't know. I think Craven is a deeply, deeply flawed character. When I say humanity is corrupted, I think part of the point is that he's very much past uh, any kind of idealism or or innocence. But yeah. He's a he's a pretty fucked up person, basically. Who's the other guy? Jedberg. He was really good, mm. and uh, the CIA dude. That was hilarious. We won't spoil the great, the you know, the best moment in the series, which yeah. takes place at the conference with Jedberg. Uh, you definitely have to watch that. Yeah, you got to stay and watch that part. And uh, there's a part that that's related to this, where the owner of uh, the nuclear power company from Kansas Fusion uh, was dropping some heavy colonial imperialist scientism mm. in his high frontier speech, and uh, he even uh, name dropped the Western expansion and everything mm. and colonialism on North America. Yeah. And uh, I was waiting for him to say ejaculate into the cosmos, mm. like in that uh, situationist uh, yeah. criticism. Back to yeah, conquest of space in the time of power. Yeah, it was very much the idea of man having dominion over na nature. Yeah, the military people were really loving the speech. What I found really cool was like, you had this host Thatcher politician or one of Thatcher's cabinet who was there and uh, who was along with this, who was trying to get this through, uh, privatizing mm. the nuclear power stuff. And what was really funny, I couldn't stop laughing, was the scene where this guy's like Elon Musk talking about, like, we're going to Mars and shit, baby. Mm. And like, the guy's like, so where would we go? Yeah, you know, and the guy just like looks right back at him, like seriously. <laughs> it's like the lack of imagination of the neoliberal ruling class mm. that there's any kind of even negative utopianism or uh, highfalutin aims for the stars or aims for radical reinvention of society it just it completely uh, didn't affect him you know because of his lack of imagination and i thought that was really good writing so i'm going to talk a little bit more about gaia theory uh in my view there are some more sound conceptions of personified nature so lovelock borrowed the concept of gaia from greek mythology and the idea of an earth mother or sort of parental earth is, is common across many spiritualities. But unlike in Lovelock, this isn't usually connected with an idea of a future vengeful depopulation. That's not to deny these various conceptions of earth mother could be vengeful. They certainly were at times. But Lovelock's theory of a future cleansing depopulation of Earth by Gaia was one of his own innovations. The reality is any depopulation would most affect the dispossessed peoples who are least responsible for ecological destruction. 
In a 2008 interview with the Daily Hale, Lovelock says the carrying capacity of the Earth is 1 billion people. In other words, billions of people will have to die. And he speculates on migration patterns in an apocalyptic future in racialized terms. So, quote, White Americans are descended from those who had the guts to cross on rough old ships. Whoa! Yeah, yeah, quite racist. Saying the quiet shit out loud there, buddy. Yeah, pretty much. Like, it's getting into kind of race science territory. I mean, even aside from idealizing colonization, why does the fact that, like, they're descended from those people mean they'll be able to survive the future? Like, that that's kind of... Sounds a bit race science I think that question answers itself, unfortunately. Yeah. They have the right spirit of can-do, close quote. The USA has the second highest per capita emissions in the world. Oh, I'm not saying white Americans should die, but, like, if we're talking about the destruction of most of the Earth's peoples, He's talking about the people least responsible getting the most consequences, and he seems okay with this. So after speculating about the deaths of billions of people and the survival of white Americans, now again, sure, I think white Americans should survive, but I think everyone should survive. That would be nice. Uh, He concludes, quote, we are about to take an evolutionary step, and my hope is that the species will emerge stronger, close quote. Yeah, so the mass die-out of the global south is going to lead to the opening of the third eye, the pineal gland of white people to be able to be telepaths, I guess. Uh, this is uh, pretty shitty. Uh, the re- I remember a couple years back, uh, he even wrote a piece about how it's going to take too long to do anything about climate change. Let's just embrace nuclear. Yeah. And less listeners think this is reading too much in. In a 2012 interview with The Guardian, Lovelock said, quote, We're naturally racist. You can't get away from it. People are individually racist, but they don't want a large culture dumped on them. I don't know anyone personally who would be nasty to someone because of their color or because they come from a different country. It's not our style in these islands, close quote. By these islands, he means the UK, and people might be quite surprised to hear that racism isn't really their style. It's also funny hearing him say, well, we're all naturally racist, but I don't know anyone racist. Yeah, that's news to us wogs, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, some might take this as as yet more dredging up of problematic shit about a prominent figure, which sure can be uh, a bit tiresome as an extension of celebrity fixation. But I think Lovelock here exemplifies the tendency of populationism to slide into racism. So obviously for Thanos, it was a random 50%, but in practice, it tends to end up meaning uh, the people of the global south who are, who are least responsible for all these problems. Uh, he expresses fears about the UK being swamped with migrants or refugees, about large brown populations, and he fantasizes about the evolutionary step forward represented by the racialized global majority getting murdered. 
what does that even mean? He doesn't even quantify that with anything. It's like, what's what's a what's a evolutionary step forward? Yeah, we're going to be able to survive outer space easier, maybe as colonists, because our bodies are going to be more hardy. I mean, what the fuck is he talking about? And if you go by reality, that just doesn't line up. If if anybody's wiping out white people, it's white people. I like your idea that it's the opening of the third eye. We'll finally have our yogic hippie future transcendence with with only white Americans just like ascending ascending to the next realm I guess uh, that's that's pretty much all I can get from it yeah it's very Jules Julius Evola you know mm. we're exiting the age of the Kali Yuga and opening the the minds to people joining the age of Aquarius mm. well, he always was into woo so all that being said, and now I'm going to endorse what some people might take as woo anyway. You don't have to follow Lovelock to explore the concept of Earth as a collective being. So there are alternative conceptions of this that aren't inherently racist. So the rights of Mother Earth or Pachamama were codified famously in Bolivia's constitution, which indigenous people played a key role in developing. Just an aside on more recent events, Avo's pursuit of extractive capitalism split the movement that brought him to power, but it's also pretty clear that the coup leaders do not have indigenous interests at heart, to say the least. But back more broadly to this embodied nature question, in Te Reo Māori, there's the concept of Papatuanuku, the Earth Mother, uh, who's identical with the land, and Ranginui, the father, who's identical with the sky. And the rights of Papatuanuku are often invoked in, in social struggles in Aotearoa. You'll, you'll hear that at rallies and things. And you also have Japanese animism, where, where all things are alive. Shinto religion, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is arguably an influence on kaiju mythology, which we've discussed. The Abrahamic faiths like Christianity have generally taken a different approach, prioritizing human souls over and above matter and over and above nature. But even then, you have someone like Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza, who advocated a kind of uh, pantheism where God is a name for nature, and the only way to know God is to know nature. Dawkins called Spinoza's pantheism a sexed-up atheism, but it's not clear to me why Dawkins would see a problem with sexing up atheism. God may not verifiably exist as a separate man over and above our existence, but there's something to spirituality as a way of naming our connections with the land and universe. The idea of matter as conscious is gaining credibility among physicists, though admittedly spirituality by its nature can't be scientifically verified or falsified. It's just a different thing, fundamentally. What evolutionary biologist and science historian Stephen Jay Gould calls non-overlapping magisteria, they're just different, distinct spheres. But more to the point, the 18th century dichotomy between a knowing man and an unknowing passive nature has proven destructive and self-destructive. What eco-socialists 
call the metabolic rift between humanity and nature. So there's restorative value in personifying the land as a being whose welfare is connected with ours rather than simply a set of resources. The notion of an interconnected ecology might sound like hippie nonsense, but actually has a lot of scientific verification at this point. All systems and all life systems are interconnected. It's not only our labor that's exploited, but the land, the violent transformation of blood and soil capital. And back on that notion of man dominion over nature, I'd say part of the problem with Gaia theory as as for example articulated in Edge of Darkness where where Craven is uh, heel side with nature every time is that it's just reversal where instead of man having dominion over nature nature should have a victory over man as opposed to a more sort of integrated ecological conception that our interests are best served by by protecting nature yeah because we are animals that are part of nature yeah the separation was the problem in the first place and all of this, this whole conquering of, of nature uh, and basically what you could call the, the capitalocene, um, maybe rather than the anthropocene, uh, it's also involved the destruction of indigenous forms of knowledge. Uh, so again, rather than opposing the interests of so-called man and nature, we have to protect nature to save ourselves. Uh, it's no coincidence that indigenous people have been at the forefront of this whether it's Standing Rock in the US, the Amazon in Brazil, Ihu Matau in Aotearoa, or Jabwarang here in Nam, or the so-called Victoria, Australia. In all of those cases uh, where indig protecting indigenous land is also an ecological struggle. Welcome to the December Local Area Network Report with your humble narrator, Annie White, bringing you news and history from the Asia-Pacific with a communist bias. This month, we're talking about climate refugees in the Pacific. To give a bit of basic background on this, there are already environmental refugees in the Pacific, mainly those from Tuvalu, where erosion has led to rising sea levels, and Kiribati, where Australia and New Zealand's phosphate mining has led to displacement. With climate change on the horizon, at this rate the problem will only get worse, with storms and rising sea levels particularly affecting the low-lying atolls and islands of the Pacific. Australia and New Zealand have a particular obligation as higher emitting countries with lots of land and money in the region. And so far, while we have taken Pacifica migrant workers where convenient, there is still no legal recognition of environmental refugees. To expand on this topic, here's an extended quote from the article Are There Climate Refugees in the Pacific? by Ian Fry an international environmental law and policy expert. This was published in June this year by the Asia and Pacific Policy Society. Quote, In 2013, Mr. Ioane Teiteota, 
from Kiribati asked the New Zealand High Court to allow his appeal against a decision made by the Immigration and Protection Tribunal. He had been refused asylum as a climate change refugee. The tribunal found that Mr. Tatiota had undertaken what can may be termed a voluntary adaptive migration and that his decision to migrate to New Zealand could not be seen as forced. Mr. Tatiota appealed this decision and the appeal process ended up in the Supreme Court. The High Court found that in relation to the Refugee Convention, Mr. Tatiota did not face serious harm and further that there was no proof that the Kiribati government was failing to provide its citizens with the help it could give against the effects of environmental degradation. This was not the first case where someone had claimed that they were a climate change refugee and it is unlikely to be the last. Not long after Jacinda Ardern was elected as Prime Minister of New Zealand in 2017, Climate Change Minister James Shaw announced that the government was considering creating a visa category to help relocate Pacific peoples displaced by climate change. In February this year, however, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters claimed it was premature to extend New Zealand's citizenship to environmental refugees fleeing the effects of climate change. While people are displaced across national borders as a consequence of climate events, it seems evident that they cannot be defined as refugees under the 1951 Refugee Convention. According to the definition of refugee, these people are excluded because they have not suffered some form of persecution. Consequently, these climate change displaced people tend to fall through legal protections established by the Refugee Convention. As a result of this lack of legal protection, Prime Minister Enele Sopoaga announced at the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit that Tuvalu would be tabling a United Nations General Assembly resolution to commence work on developing a legal re regime to give protection to people displaced by climate change. This draft resolution is currently being circulated for consideration at this year's General Assembly. In making this announcement, Sopuaga clearly stated this resolution was in response to a global problem and that this was not a signal that Tuvaluans were wanting to move to another country. Tuvaluans want to stay in Tuvalu. The notion of climate change migration as an adaptive strategy rather than a forced need was promoted by the former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, when he referred to the concept of migration with dignity. The former saw migration as an adaptation strategy and wanted to make sure that anyone from Kiribati wanting to migrate should be able to do so without becoming second-class citizens in another country. As part of this policy, the Tong government purchased 
5,500 acres of land in Fiji. Anote Tong's view is not shared by the current president, Paniti Mamo, who prefers his stay-and-fight policy in line with views shared by Sopawaga. Despite this, Fiji's Prime Minister Voreke Bainimarama announced at a climate change meeting in 2017 that he would allow the populations of Kiribati and Tuvalu to settle in his country. Some Pacific Islanders are likely to perceive climate change as a threat to their livelihood and may choose to migrate, but it is also inevitable that others will be internationally displaced by climate change. Though they may not be defined as climate change refugees, they must still be given appropriate rights in their country of resettlement and the opportunity to return to their homeland if circumstances change. What the world needs from here onwards, therefore, are stronger legal and policy frameworks to support them." Close quote. Meanwhile, in bittersweet news, Kurdish refugee Beruz Bouchani was finally released from Australia's Manus Island prison on a month-long visa in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Bouchani has written extensively on the situation for refugees and you can find his writing on The Guardian and other, among other places. He even wrote via WhatsApp uh, because obviously he didn't have access to a laptop in prison. His writing is well worth reading. But this small but significant victory was then undercut when officials said there was no plan to extend his visa and ministers refused to comment. At the time of recording, Bouchani's status remains unclear. And in yet another frustrating half measure, in November, Aotearoa New Zealand's Labour government passed a Zero Carbon Act, forming an independent body aiming to help the country reach emissions targets by 2050. In the opinion of your humble narrator, fact that it's non-binding with no consequences for emitters is fairly damning. Without binding targets, all the other details which have been hashed out at great length seem academic. It seems we're still at the stage of denial at worst and symbolic commitments at best. I'd love to be proven wrong here. As increasing numbers are realizing It'll take a mass movement to force meaningful changes. Story is old, I know, but it goes on. Here, Kaha comrades. Now here's We, we Survive by The Happy Plaster, sung by Helene Prattley. We're happy to be hosting the second Helene Prattley song on this podcast. The first was Big Rick's Scientist, way back in our first episode in July. Helene is also involved in a feminist podcast called Femforce Aotearoa, which is well worth checking out. She says this song, We Survive, is about the hope that we can get our shit together in light of climate change. Enjoy.
Well, that's it from us this year. We hope you enjoyed our work. If you did, please consider setting up a monthly contribution to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash jetpack1917. Also, a word from our sponsors. If you're a good person, consider donating to the NanoLoan Group at nanoloans.org. The NanoLoan Group offers loans to third world women, ensuring a life of debt. The NanoLoan philosophy is that there's nothing more empowering than debt. If we were to simply give people money, it would rob them of agency, whereas obligation towards rich people ensures a healthy sense of self-sufficiency. With every nano loan comes an implant of nanobots, ensuring lifelong compliance. Let's indebt the world together. If you donate at nanoloans.org jetpack, we will get kickbacks. It is hard out here for a podcaster. Disclaimer, that was a joke. The Nano Loan Group does not exist and is not sponsoring us. That said, if you want a more serious take on microloans, do visit nanoloans.org and make our purchase of that domain worthwhile. We don't need any more sponsorship now that Soros check finally cleared. Merry Christmas and see you in the future. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage. The airplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future.